Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5. Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read in just a minute, so I would like you to be ready for it. Uh, Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, we'll start in verse 8 in just a second. Uh, we did show a, a picture this morning of uh, Caleb Shibley. Congratulations to the Shibleys. Caleb is the first of six babies that we expect between now and April uh, in our congregation. So we're excited about that. There are more than one way to grow a church. So we're thankful for all of the babies that God has given to us. We should also wish today congratulations to Grant and Emma Friesen. Today is their one-week anniversary. So they were married last Sunday in Maine by Emma's father, and uh, they're here at church today. So that's great. We're excited. Well, you can clap. Sure, that's we're excited about that. Congratulations. They're sitting close, but it's legal now, so we'll move on, all right? So that's good. Zach Eswine is a pastor. He's an author. He serves in uh, Missouri right now. A few years ago, he and his associate pastor did a series on Sunday mornings at their church called The Questions Our Young People Are Asking. So that was the name of the, the series. The questions our young people are asking. They invited junior and senior high students in the church to anonymously submit questions. They took the questions, read them, and tried to, on successive Sundays, answer some of those questions in sermons they delivered on Sunday morning. It's an interesting idea. How much overlap do you think there would be between the questions about following God and uh, living life as a follower of Jesus, the Bible? How many of those questions that junior and senior high students have would overlap with the questions that you might have? There's probably a fair amount. Uh, Here's an example of one of the questions. Why is it, this inquiring young adult wanted to know, why is it that when I'm at church or at youth group or at summer camp, I experience God in a powerful way, But then when I go back into my week of homework, practice, chores, and stuff, I lose God. Nothing changes the everyday. How do I get God into my everyday life? Have you ever asked that question? Or a question like that? How is it that you can feel so close to God in a church service or at a retreat or at a conference, but then real life always intervenes and it's always ugly? I remember several years ago, I was in junior high, I think, my dad took our youth group to a, to a several years ago. <laughs> it's time for church discipline, brothers and sisters. <laughs> it was like 30. <laughs> well, way back in the last century. I didn't take my centrum this morning. I can't remember. So anyway... Way back in the 80s, the 1980s, I was at a building, now torn down, called the Buffalo Christian Center. My dad took our youth group there, and there was a presentation that evening, a big concert by the Jeremiah people. Does anybody remember the Jeremiah people? They were a group of Christian actors, and they would uh, do presentations, they'd do skits and songs, and and the theme for this night was about your family relationships and loving one another in your family relationships. And I was sitting there, and my sister, uh, my older sister was a couple uh, people down, 
it was a moving experience. They, they, they really talked to us well about what the Bible says about valuing your brothers and sisters. And we were, we were both moved. I was so moved. They were closing the program. I was moved. Some of this, you will know how moved I was because I almost, I almost reached over and gave her a hug. I almost did. Almost. And I left. I was determined. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love my sister more fully, more wholly for Christ's sake. And then we got home and she did something that annoyed me or more likely I did something that annoyed her and it was over. You, you don't necessarily need to be a Christian to uh, understand uh, this phenomenon. Uh, you can have some sort of experience watching a movie or reading a novel, hearing a news story or listening to a very beautiful piece of music and, and it moves you and it awakens within you this desire to pursue goodness in, in the world. And, but then, then the next day on your way to work, somebody cuts you off and that desire just vanishes. That's discouraging. If a beautiful piece of music or a, a movie can move you that much, how much more so should we be discouraged by this phenomenon? We, we gather together, we worship the one true God, we really speak to Him, we really hear from Him in His Word, uh, we really experience the convicting power of the Holy Spirit when we meet together, but then we forget about it so fast. Scott and Celia and I read a book uh, this past week we were discussing. It had a line in it from a testimony in the book. Listen to what this woman wrote. I'm an amnesiac to God's sovereignty and grace in the world and in my life. Does anybody feel like an amnesiac? Sunday mornings are beautiful and wonderful and you think high thoughts of the Lord Jesus. But then by Tuesday, you can't remember uh, Ecclesiastes is here to help us with that. The man who wrote this book, perhaps it was King Solomon, but he calls himself the teacher. He wants to help you connect uh, what you know and believe about God with the life that you lead, the life that you lead in this world that is often broken and dark and mysterious. And when we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we should especially see this connection because, as you remember, last week we started chapter 5 talks about going into the house of God. When you worship, how do you worship with the many cares that you have? When you come to worship with a lot of burdens, remember to listen. Remember that God is in the heavens and you are on the earth. Don't make rash promises. Uh, we get that. It, it goes against our natural tendencies. We, we have this natural tendency to worship frenetically sometimes, to try to manipulate God into giving us what we want, to make rash promises that we don't intend to keep. We understand the teacher, what he's saying there. Go near to God to listen. Like Psalm 131, we just read it. I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. I know a baby who, uh, when he was, used to take a bottle, not one of my own children, a friend of ours, uh, when, when his mother would bring the bottle within sight, his, eye, his, his fingers would go like this, and he would start crying because he was so hungry for the bottle. That is not a calm and quiet child. But a, a weaned child with its mother is a child that has lost this sense of urgency, urgency to be with, the, with, with his mother, and is just happy to, to be held and comforted like a weaned child with its mother. So, God, I have calmed and quieted my soul when I come into your presence. And the teacher tells us to do that. But then, starting in verse 8 of chapter 5, the teacher takes us out of the house of God and into, as the old hymn says, the world of woe. 
What do we do now? Because it's pretty bad out here. I have calmed and quieted my soul, but outside it's so bad. Here's one of the warnings that the teacher wants uh, to give you, that a warning about how you can sabotage the fear of God and what you have just cultivated in worship. You go to worship, you quiet your heart to listen, to respond submissively to the supremacy of God in all things, and then you leave and you sabotage that reverence that you have just cultivated. What should you look out for? The teacher says, look out for the alluring temptations of wealth, of money. Here's a warning about what you own and what you want to own. Now, you know, I, I both know that when preachers talk about money, it makes people nervous. Jesus talked about money a lot. Uh, remember the line I borrowed from another preacher a long time ago. At our church, we care more about your heart than about your wallet. But because we care about your wallet, your heart, we have to talk to you about your wallet. This doesn't work if you get it wrong. Let me start again. Because <laughs> this is true. At our church, we care more about your heart than your wallet. But because we care about your heart, we have to talk to you about your wallet. That's better. Here's what the teacher says. In this passage, starting in verse 8 and continuing through uh, chapter 6, verse 9, the teacher warns us about wealth. He does it by tell us, telling us three things. First, he warns us by describing how some people acquire wealth. How do some people, not all people, but how do some people get wealth? Then he warns us by telling us that wealth can be so dangerous Wealth is not the answer that most of us think it is. Social scientists have studied this. They've studied the relationship between wealth and happiness. And up to a certain point, your wealth and your happiness, they track along pretty well. But when you reach a certain level of wealth, your happiness, uh, it, it varies. It, it, is not, it doesn't align at all with, with how much money you have. Now I know what you're thinking. What's that level of wealth? The social scientists didn't say, but you know what we're all thinking? $10,000 more than I have right now. If I just had a little bit more than I have right now, if I just have a, that magic number more than I have right now, then my happiness would be completely independent of, 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 of my wealth. Mm. Wealth can be dangerous. The teacher wants you to think twice about that. And then third, the teacher, what he's going to do is he's going to teach us how to enjoy wealth. So three things that we're going to see. We're going to talk about how some people acquire wealth, and that itself is a warning. It's not pretty. Then second, we're going to talk about why wealth can be so dangerous, and we're going to learn a sad story. And then third, we're going to talk about how to enjoy the wealth that you have right now. First, though, let's uh, read what the Scripture says. Uh, we don't do this all the time, but we should do it every now and then to remind ourselves I'm going to invite you in honor of God and his word while he speaks to us through it. Would you stand while I read from Ecclesiastes chapter 5? We'll stand here and we'll stand downstairs uh, reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 5 starting in verse 8. Hear what Holy Scripture says. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to their owners except to feast their eyes on them? 
The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes from their mother's womb, and as everyone, everyone comes naked from their mother's womb. And as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. This is what I have observed to be good. That it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. I've seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place? Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Thus ends this reading of God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word. May he write its eternal truths on all our hearts. You may be seated. So, what's the problem with money? Why do we need to be warned about it? Uh, because, first of all, how some people acquire their wealth. Because of how some people acquire their wealth. Verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5 begin with this discussion about oppression and uh, injustice. It's a subject that some people see as somewhat far removed from the rest of the discussion about wealth, but it, it connects because he's talking about why, uh, why oppression sometimes happens. This is about governmental corruption. The teacher describes something that you might see, the poor being oppressed, injustice, rights being denied. Have you seen any of that this week? Um, maybe in the news? Can anyone at all think of any examples of oppression or injustice that you have seen in the news? Actually, are there any news stories this week that weren't about oppression and injustice of some kind? So what do we do about it? It's interesting, the teacher doesn't call us to arms. The teacher says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at such things. Uh, God is in the heavens, that's true, and we're on the earth. He reigns supreme, but still, in, in this broken world for his season, he has allowed oppression and injustice to thrive. And you know what the problem is? Bureaucracy. He says it. Um, one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. And they're all getting their share. 
The problem is corruption, corrupt governmental bureaucracy. This is what the teacher says about oppression and injustice. There's too much corruption, there's too much bureaucracy, and all of the small government conservatives in the room said, Amen. Now, we have to talk about verse 9, and then we'll, we'll go back to that. Verse 9 is, is tricky. It's worth spending time on because if you were paying attention as I was reading and you have an English Standard Version, an ESV, it was quite a bit different than the NIV translation. So uh, the, the Hebrew, the, the text literally says, here's what it says literally, profit from the land in all is this, a king in respect of a cultivated field, which is very clear. Um, there's a number of, pro- of, of possible interpretations, all of which echo other parts of the Bible, and I'll talk about the two of them, uh, two key ones. The, the, the main emphasis here in this passage is understanding how the word serve or how the word profit works in the sentence. Who's serving and who's profiting? Um, the NIV says that the king himself profits from the land. That is, the reason there's so much oppression and injustice is because of this overarching corrupt bureaucracy and even the king is involved. The king himself is involved in this. Even he, especially the king at the top, has his hand in the till. That, that, that's one possible interpretation. But maybe it's actually, the emphasis is on the king not being served by the land, but the king serving the land. That, that's what the ESV implies. The ESV says, But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. So even though there's corruption, the teacher could be saying, even though there's corruption due to the bureaucracy, we still do need government. We still need a king to make sure that farmland is protected and that the rule of law proceeds so that business can move forward. So the teacher is skeptical of the bureaucracy. Um, He's not an anarchist. Uh, We still need government. Now, both of these interpretations are possible, and the Bible teaches both of them at various points. Governments can be corrupt and harmful, but government is still necessary. We Christians have a conflicted relationship with government. Uh, on the one hand, government itself has been ordained by God. It's his, it's his good pleasure that humans establish, support, and uphold the rule of law. The Bible teaches that. It's a blessing from God. It's an expression of his sovereignty. At the same time, the government is populated by crooked human beings. And throughout most of human history, even today around the world, government has not been on the side of followers of Jesus. Uh, in, in our own country, we live in a vast parenthesis across time and across cultures. In the balance of time, across nations, across cultures, governments have not been friends of the followers of Jesus. In general, they tend not to like the competition for loyalty that Jesus makes in your life. Governments have not been friends of the poor, this text says. And we Christians are friends of the poor. So we have mixed feelings about the government. And and here's the problem. When people get power, they often use that power to enrich themselves at the cost of the welfare of others. Even we Christians do that when we get power. Don't you know some, some followers of Jesus who they get into office, they move higher up, higher up, and, and then they're corrupted by their own power. 
One of the reasons that we Baptists have been so adamant about the separation of church and state is because we know that when church and state get together, when they're too cozy, too comfortable, it's bad for both church and state. Do you know any politicians who've used their office to make themselves wealthy? (laughs) So we've heard a lot about uh, corruption recently. We've heard a lot about Joe Biden's son, Hunter. He used his connections to get high-paying corporate board jobs. Do you know who have been the biggest critics of Joe Biden's son? Donald Trump's son and Mitt Romney's niece have been the biggest critics of Joe Biden's son for using his father's political connections to get money. Here's this warning about wealth. Some people get it by oppressing or abusing others. Not everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people. And that should discourage you from loving wealth so much. It's so easy to be corrupt with money. It's not worth all of this injustice and oppression. Now, second, the teacher here continues in this warning in this passage. He tells us, secondly, why wealth can be so dangerous. Why it can be so dangerous. And he gives three quick reasons in verses 10, 11, and 12. Money doesn't satisfy. It creates more trouble. And third, it doesn't produce peace. It doesn't satisfy. It creates more trouble. And it doesn't produce the peace and security that we want. Let's consider them in reverse order, right? You're flipping back and forth on your note sheet. I'm sorry about that. I actually want to start down at verse 12 at the beginning. Uh, uh, Money doesn't produce peace. Verse 12 is about restful sleep. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance... Here's a funny play in words. That word abundance, it either means how much they own, the the vast things that they own, or, or it means their size... They eat a lot, and, and their abundance permits them no sleep. There's an advantage to not having many things, the teacher is saying. You don't have to worry about what you own. If your money makes you secure, if you get peace from your money, if it's the source of your peace, you will never be truly secure because your possessions are never truly secure. That's why Jesus said, he warned us, he said, don't, don't store up your treasures on earth where moth and rust and thieves can come and destroy. Store up your treasures where there are no robbers and there are no moths and there are no thieves. Then you can sleep at night. Just think about all those people. His name, it's been in the news, it was in the news several years ago actually. All those people who thought their riches were safe because their friend Bernie Madoff was taking care of it for them. And they were sleeping peacefully at night because they were in the hands of their good friend Bertie Madoff and then it was revealed that he was a crook and all their money was gone just like that. If your peace, if your security is in what you own, you will not have peace because what you own is not as safe as you think it is. I remember when we moved from uh, Dallas, Texas to Lancaster County, we loaded up everything that we owned. It was not much we loaned it all, all up, owned it up, loaded it up though in this big van that we had rented, and then we put our car in a trailer and pulled it down the road. This rider truck that we have took off down the highway. First night we pulled into a hotel and parked there. I slept horribly. Every hour I got up and looked out the window because everything I owned was out there in front of me on wheels. Everything I owned out there was there. It was all I had. What if someone stole it? I would have nothing, nothing 
accept all of the promises of an almighty God. But all my stuff was there, right? If your security is in what you own, you will never have security because it is not safe. It's not as safe as you think it is. Verse 11 tells us that money creates more troubles. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. Now, what does that mean? Get a lot of money and get a bigger house. And if you get a bigger house, you need to get a maid to clean your big house and a gardener to take care of your big house and a cook to cook your food and a butler and the tax man takes more. And you suddenly have a raft of needy relatives and suspicious-looking friends. And, uh, and all you do is you watch people consume your money. You brought the picnic and here come all the ants. Now verse 10, we're moving up the passage. Verse 10 says that money doesn't satisfy. Uh, whoever loves money never has enough of it. Actually, verses 7, 8, 9 of chapter 6 kind of echo this a little bit. Um, Verse 7 says, everyone's toil is for their mouth. Their appetite is never satisfied. Verse 9 says, better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. It's better better what you have in front of you is is better than what your eyes can see. It's better than having this ever-roving desire for more. Did you notice the words that the teacher uses here in, in verses uh, 10 and following to describe people and their money? He uses the word love, whoever loves money, and satisfaction. In verse 17, he writes about a man who's lost his fortune, and he has darkness, frustration, affliction, and anger. Anger is an interesting word. He lost his money, and now he's angry. Anger is a very revealing emotion. You get angry if what you love is threatened or hurt or lost or damaged. Your anger will tell you what you truly love. And this man is angry because he lost his wealth. The teacher is is warning us about what we want wealth to deliver. It cannot provide you with ultimate satisfaction. It cannot give you the peace, the security, the happiness that you want it to deliver. Earlier this year, I read an excellent book by Drew Dick called um, Your Future Self Will Thank You. It's a book about self-control. There's a chapter in this book about social media and self-control with social media. There are some of us who spend way too much time on social media. In fact, you can't seem to stop. So in 2017, the founding president of Facebook, his name is Sean Parker, he spoke candidly about Facebook. Facebook, uh, uh, in its public image, is all about building community. We foster community as a company. But in reality, privately, the goal of Facebook is to consume as much of your time and attention as possible. And they do it, Parker said, by exploiting a, a trait, a vulnerability in human psychology. They have very smart people spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to make sure you spend as much time as possible on Facebook. And the ones that don't work at Facebook work at Instagram or at Snapchat or at Pinterest. So uh, your brain releases, you've probably heard this, your brain releases a chemical called dopamine, and dopamine is often called the feel-good chemical. It's, it's released when you, for example, make a discovery about something or, or uh, accomplish something, or dopamine is released when you do drugs or when you gamble. Researchers have used MRI machines to watch your brain when you use social media, and when someone likes your post, or someone comments on your post, your brain releases a little bit of dopamine. 
And teenagers, uh, developing brains, are especially vulnerable to this. And in that sense, social media becomes addictive because we love the dopamine hits. So we stick around for more and we keep posting and posting and posting. Now the problem is that dopamine actually doesn't deliver pleasure. It's called the feel-good hormone. Uh, Instead, chemical, uh, uh, dopamine makes you anticipate pleasure. So dopamine is released in your brain, for example, when you see a piece of chocolate cake. You see a piece of chocolate cake, dopamine is released in your brain, and the dopamine is telling you that's going to be really good. Uh, It it makes you pursue it. It, Eat it, it will make you happy. Dopamine tells you if you eat that, it will make you happy. But dopamine doesn't actually deliver the happiness to us. It just makes us anticipate the happiness. And if your brain is continually flooded with dopamine, but you don't actually get the pleasure that it's telling you to anticipate, um, it will actually make you miserable. You'll be worse off. You'll be incredibly uh, frustrated. The desire without the associated pleasure is frustrating. But you keep looking at your phone because you think that pleasure is there somewhere. Your brain is telling you to anticipate. It's here somewhere. If you just keep looking, if you just post enough, if you just get enough likes, then you'll be happy. So just keep looking here. I think that's the same way we are with money. Just just keep looking. We want it to make us happy. Just keep working at it. It, it will satisfy if you have enough. If you manage it well enough, if you get enough of it, if you buy enough of that stuff, it will make you happy, but it can't. It cannot give you what you want it to deliver. You want love. You want satisfaction. You want security. You want peace. Wealth cannot provide those things for you. The teacher here is pointing to a reality that's woven through the entire Bible. We human beings have a terrible capacity to look for happiness and for satisfaction in all kinds of wrong places. The Bible calls this idolatry, of course. Look with me at Jeremiah 2.13 and what it says. I'm sure we've read this passage before on Sunday mornings. Jeremiah 2.13. God says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. The whole world is thirsty. God created us to know and follow Him. Knowing Him is this great thirst. We have this thirst to know Him. But here's our folly... We have turned from God, who is the spring of living water, to cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And we dig and dig and dig looking for water, and there's no water to be found in these broken cisterns. This turning from God is the great sin that incites His wrath. This turning from Him. You, you, want, you were made to find life and light and peace through knowing Him, but you have turned The teacher says you've turned to money. Some of you have turned to relationships or to sex or to power or to control or to having an ideal family. And you have incited the wrath of God because you've turned from Him to these things. This turning is the great sin that incites the wrath of God. It's the great folly that provokes the mercy of God. Ian Proven said, It is the breathtaking stupidity of sin rather than simply its wrongness that often strikes our biblical authors. That's worth repeating. It is the striking stupidity, the breathtaking stupidity of sin, rather than simply its wrongness that often strikes our biblical authors. 
This is the crime that the Lord Jesus came to rescue us from, this turning. He offers himself as the living water. Didn't he say to that woman at the well, um, um, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again? Um, Jesus said, my people have committed, or God said in Jeremiah, my people have committed the sin. They've turned from me the spring of living water. And Jesus comes in John 4 and says, whoever drinks from the, water, the well I have will have a spring of water coming up. They'll never thirst again. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin by this turning uh, by, uh, on the cross when he died the death that we should have died. And he offers himself to all who will turn to him to find life and forgiveness. Take me as your greatest treasure, Jesus says. Find me to be your satisfaction and your life and your peace because money will not satisfy you. I thought about this morning when we were singing that song. I will trust in my Redeemer. He's the wellspring of my soul. My soul will be satisfied in him alone. Sometimes I sing that song. Most of the time I sing that song aspirationally rather than actually. Because most of what it means to follow Jesus, our struggle in this race that we're in, is a struggle of turning, turning from empty, broken cisterns to finding satisfaction in Jesus alone. What are you in the process of turning from? Are you toying with anything right now? Jesus says, come to me, come to me. I'm the spring of living water. Turn from your broken cistern. So following Jesus is like, some of you know this, you've been at this for 50 or 60 years and you're turning, turning, constantly turning. Now if you need more clarity on that, the teacher tells us a story about something he saw in verse 13 and he describes it as a a grievous evil. It's so bad it was sickening to him. There was a man who had wealth, a lot of man, a lot of wealth this man had, and he hoarded it, and then he lost it in some way. I don't know how he lost it. And then he has nothing left to give to his children, and it made him very angry. I don't know how he lost it. Maybe it was a bad investment. Um, he has nothing to leave his children. Is that why he was working so hard? Is that why he was hoarding his money? He was, he was working really hard to provide for his family, to bless them. His money is going to give them all the happiness and security and peace that he sacrificed himself. This is what he was going to leave them, and he has nothing to leave them now, and now he's angry about that. He says in verse 15, Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry with their hands. It's interesting he uses that image, things you carry with your hands. Think about this. This is a good reminder. What matters most that you leave your children? The things you can carry in your hand or the things that are in your heart part of your character? It's the latter, isn't it? Your children will not be blessed most by the things that you give them, by the vacations you take them on or the gifts you give them, the possessions you give them. Your children will be most blessed by the time and attention, your example, your love, your character that you leave to them. You have nothing in your hands that you can give to your kids that is more valuable than the example of someone who loves the Lord Jesus and is following God faithfully. Here's a man who's very upset, who's just lost, lost, 
and darkness and anger because this is what he was going to give his kids, what he had in his hands, and he lost it all and his life was ruined. Compare what you have in your hands with what is in your heart. Wealth is deceptive because it's not as valuable as you're tempted to think it is. It won't give you the peace. It won't give you the rest. It won't give you the safety, the security that you want it to give you. If you think it's really that valuable, your life will end in darkness and frustration. So what do we do? The teacher has warned us wealth is not to be trusted. Some people get it through nefarious means. Some people expect it to deliver what it can't deliver. And now we're going to move on to our final section in this passage here. This warning or this commendation, actually a command here from the teacher. Here's how to enjoy the wealth that you have. Here's how to enjoy the wealth that you have. Whatever it is, whether it's a lot or a little, here's how to enjoy it. The center of this passage is in verses 18 through 20. But he actually tells another story uh, before we get there in in chapter 6, starting in verse 1, about a man who hoarded his wealth, but then, um, uh, well, actually, a a different story. We've already talked about a story, a man who hoarded his wealth and then lost it all, and it made him bitter and angry. Here's a story that is also sickening, that's another evil. It's about another wealthy person, chapter uh, verse 2 says. There's a guy, he has wealth and possessions and honor. He doesn't lack anything that his heart desires. Where does he get it from? Verse 2 says that God gives it to him. It's a great blessing. But there's something that God did not give him. Verse 2, God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing, their hearts desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. Strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. There's a declaration and reminder of the sovereignty of God, right? I have questions about this. I have a lot of questions about this. Why did God give this person so much wealth? Why did he give, them a lot of, give this man a lot of wealth, but then he did not give him the ability to enjoy the wealth? Was it some sort of discipline? What's God doing? I don't understand. God, God's doing something that's mysterious here. But the point is, without the gift from God to be able to enjoy his wealth, this man is in a terrible state. If God gives you wealth, but he doesn't give you the ability to enjoy it, you're lost. You may have great blessings. You may have a hundred children. You may live a long, long life. But without the ability to enjoy those gifts, which is also a gift from God, you're worse off, he says, it's terrible than a stillborn child. Anything, anything so grievous on earth as this? Some of you know what this is like to lose a child. It's a grief you carry with you for the rest of your life. A stillborn child says, he, the teacher says, departs in darkness. His name is shrouded in darkness. And yet, at least that child has rest. Rest that, more rest than the rich man who doesn't enjoy his wealth. The teacher is pretty serious in this passage about enjoying wealth. Does that surprise you? He's pretty serious about this. Um, Look at the center of the passage here, uh, chapters 18 through 20 of of, of chapter 5, and notice all the words here that are dedicated to your happiness. Verse 18 talks about something that's good, and and he says, uh, finding satisfaction. And uh, verse 19 talks about enjoying them, to be happy. Um, God keeps uh, people occupied with gladness of heart. 
All of these are good gifts from God. So how do you enjoy the wealth that God has given you? At its heart, the Bible says, look to the God who has given you what you own and trust Him to enable you to enjoy it. The enjoyment of the wealth that we have is a gift from God. Acknowledge that what you have is from Him. He's sovereign. He has entrusted to you what you have. Your possessions He's given you. He's given you the labor you have to be able to do them. Receive them from Him. And look to Him for the opportunities and the blessings to enjoy them. Spend your money, in other words, the way that God says it will make you the happiest. He gave you the resources. Now listen to Him to, to, for Him to tell you how to enjoy them best. Take your cues from Him. This looking to God, knows how it takes you full circle. God gives you the gifts... And now we look to him to, to see, how does God want me to enjoy this wealth that he has given? What does he say about using this wealth that he has given me? That's how to enjoy it. Look to him. Receive from him as you have received from him the wealth. So receive from him the uh, ability to enjoy it. A few years ago, my daughter Claire uh, and uh, my wife Kathy ran, uh, participated in the Girls on the Run race. If you've seen any advertisements or news coverage about Girls on the Run. So Girls on the Run is a program for elementary school uh, girls. It's a 5K race for the girls and the sponsor they choose. So I went and I watched the race this year. They had it several years ago. They had it at um, uh, the baseball stadium downtown. That's where it started. So I watched the race. And I'm sure this is not true, but I kind of felt like I ran more than they did because I was at the starting line. Go, 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 and they took off. And then I looked at the map. Where are they going to be next? So I ran to the closest next plot that I could find them that would be on the route. So after they'd run a little bit, there I was again. Go, go, go. Then we all ran to the next place where I could see them and, and watch them on the route. Go, go. And then they were at the finish line. Yes, you did it. You finished. Good job. Run the race before you with the resources that God has provided with the money you earn, the possessions you buy, the food you purchase and cook, the strength you have to complete the labor. Run that race, but recognize all along the race, God is at every point providing for you, strengthening you, helping you, cheering you on, instructing you in how to enjoy the prosperity that he has given you. And he's going to be there at the end when your race is over to welcome you home. Run the race with your eye on him. Take your lead about what to do with your wealth from Him. Thank Him for it. Enjoy His gifts because they come from Him. Look always, always to Him. And this is something you can do regardless of how much money you have. I'll finish this morning by telling you about Eddie Hillison. Maybe some of you have heard about her. Ellie Hillison was born on January 15, 1940 in Holland. And soon after the Nazis invaded Holland in World War II, she uh, began writing her thoughts down in her diary. They describe what was a religious awakening during the time of the Nazi occupation. She, she thought, saw thousands of her fellow Jews deported. She herself was scheduled for deportation. Uh, before she went, she spent some time in a transit camp in uh, Westerbork in Holland. And on August 18, 1943, this is what she wrote in her diary. Remember, she's in a transport camp getting ready to move to a uh, concentration camp. You have made me so rich, oh God. 
Please let me share out your beauty with open hands. My life has become an uninterrupted dialogue with you, O God. One great dialogue. Sometimes when I stand in in some corner of the camp, my feet planted on your earth, my eyes raised toward your heavens, tears sometimes run down my face, tears of, tears of deep emotion and gratitude. At night too, when I lie in my bed and rest in you, O God, tears of gratitude run down my face, and that is my prayer. I have been terribly tired for several days, but that too will pass. Things go and come and go in a deeper rhythm and people must be taught to listen. It is the most important thing we have to learn in this life. I always wind up with just one word, God. The beat of my heart has grown deeper, more active, and yet more peaceful. And at, it is as if it, I were all the time storing up inner riches. Eddie Helsom, she wrote that and then a couple of days later, she was deported to Auschwitz. She died on November 30th, 1943. My suspicion is that regardless of how many resources you have, you're probably not enjoying them nearly enough. You probably spend way too much time worrying about them. You probably spend too much time desiring more, wishing you had better things, a bigger house, a better car. You are not looking clearly enough and consistently enough at the giver of all good and perfect gifts. He gives us all things richly to enjoy and ours is to receive them from him gladly. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and Lord, uh, you know full well, you wrote about it so much in your word you know full well when it comes to money, we are often out of our minds. We confess to you, Lord, we spend time worrying. We spend time coveting. We spend time uh, wasting the resources that you have given us. Sometimes we are just foolish with what we have. And we don't spend nearly enough time enjoying the good gifts that you have given Lord, I pray that you would help us, all of us, regardless of the wealth that we do or do not have, the financial pressures that we feel or we don't feel. I, I pray that you would enable us to look to you, to receive your good gifts, the finances that we enjoy, and to learn from you how to enjoy them. You teach us how to be happy you want us to enjoy what you have given because you are the giver of all good and perfect gifts. Help us to use our resources uh, as you would direct us to and fill us with joy as we do so. Huh. It's more blessed to give than to receive. We'll start there. And, and we'll thank you for your kindness. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.